even a cursory look at history, you would find there's a universal concept of God. Like all people, in all places, in all times, more often than not, seem to think that there's a world that shouldn't be evil, where good things shouldn't happen to bad people and bad things shouldn't happen to good people. You don't see that world here, but it's almost like universally we want there to be a different world. In the same way that there's a thirst or longing for God that's universal, it's like we're all born with thirst and there is such a thing as water. We're born with hunger, which points to the fact there is such a thing as food. Is it possible that the universal longing for a greater being might point to the fact that it really is true? C.S. Lewis was an agnostic atheist who began to explore intellectually his journey into God. He wrote a series of books called The Chronicles of Narnia. And he began to wrestle with this question in a children's book by describing children that used to live in the real world. And they got captured by a witch and put into a cave. And she begins to brainwash them and tell them that everything they think they know and have believed in isn't true. There's no world outside of this world inside of her cave. And finally, one of the kids says, really? You're telling me that this world is all there is? That we have made up a world filled with stars and trees and grass and the sun and even Aslan himself, which is the God character in the book? Go ahead and put the quote up. We'll see what they say. And in fact, she turns to the witch and says, if all that exists in this world is this black kingdom of yours, then why is it that the things we make up seem more real and more important than these? Even Plato and Aristotle talked about invisible things like courage and integrity and honor, untangible things you can't touch that are more real than this shadow world. This clue all through history that there's a, there's a God and a longing for God. And the things we wish and want are more true than the ones we even see. You ever thought about the universal concept of resurrection? It, it's like a string running through religions. In the Mesopotamian gods like Baal. Baal is known as the dying, rising God. He defeats Yam and takes over from his dad, El, and he becomes the mighty God because he died and rose again. If you've, stu stu if you've studied Egyptian uh, religions at all, you know of Osiris. He gets chopped up into like a thousand pieces. It has to be put back together after his death, and whew, life has to be breathed back into him to come to life. Anybody enjoy a nice uh, glass of wine? then you probably know that the maker of wine is the god Dionysus, the Greek Roman god, who is known as the dying and rising god, who brought you the nectar of the gods with wine. It's almost like hidden into culture and literature and our own conscience and our heart and our imagination is a longing for God and a longing for resurrection. It shows up in our movies. Think of Beauty and the Beast. The beast has to die at the end, and through magic, he's transformed, resurrected, and turned into a prince. Harry Potter, book after book after book, but eventually you know how it was going to end, because that's how every good book ends. The hero dies for others, is risen, and inspires us. If you're a Matrix sci-fi fan, you know about the one. The one who's come to fix what's broken in this world to find out we're not just in a matrix. There's a bigger world out there. And he too has to die, resurrect himself. And even at the end of the first movie, the good one, he ascends. 
It's like there's clues that have been hidden all around us our entire life, whether it's literature or philosophy or religion. And Jesus shows up as a Jewish rabbi in the first century, and he says, the Easter eggs you're looking for are hidden in the belly of a whale. There's a group of people asking him for yet another sign. And he says, no more signs I'm going to give you except this sign, the sign of Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of a whale for three days and three nights, and so too I am going to predict my own death and my own resurrection, just like he was in there three days, I'm going to be in the grave three days, and someone greater than him is here. Now, maybe you're like, Chad, really? You're going to try and convince me that Jesus is true by telling me a crazy story about Jonah and the whale, which I don't believe is true? We'll get there in a moment. I uh, got a chance to go skiing in Vail for the first time this year. My uh, son, Javen, and I went up there and just had a great time. We stayed in the Airbnb with a group of other guys. We sat down at the table after a long, hard day of skiing and met these two guys we didn't know. And one guy owned his own construction company and he just partnered with this other guy and they were skiing together. And as we got chatting, they just talked about how they've had success in business, but more recently they've gotten interested in going to church for the first time. I said, really? He said, yeah, we really don't like Christians. They're really self-righteous, judgmental, you know, really, really think they're better than other people. But I'm kind of interested in God and Jesus. By the way, what do you do for a living? I said, I pastor a church for these self-righteous religious people that you're talking about, and you are exactly right. And I'm one of them, by the way. I said, it's exactly like the account of Jonah, like the whale guy? I said, yeah, most people think Jonah is, Jonah disobeyed, God had to smack him around, then he obeyed. I said, that's not at all what the book's about. They said, what's it about? So we had this great conversation, skiing and eating pizza. And I said, the story of Jonah is about a man who's so self-righteous, he believes he's better than others, just what ticks you off about Christians. See, God appears to a guy named Jonah and says, I want you to go to Nineveh. To where like, all right, so what? Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. If you look in history, the Assyrian Empire had just crushed the northern empire of Israel. These were his enemies. And God says, I want you to go to the capital city of your enemies. Tell them they're doing wrong. I'm going to hold them accountable. Oh, I like this. And if they change, I'll forgive them. Whoa. It would be like God coming to the president of Ukraine and saying, I want you to go to Moscow, tell Putin what he's doing is wrong, I'm going to hold him accountable, but if he changes, I'll forgive him. Mm-mm-mm. And besides, those Ninevites don't believe the way I do, they don't follow certain rules the way I do, I'm a good Jewish religious person, I'm better than them, and I don't want them to get forgiven. And that's the first clue we find, actually, in the story. The clue is that God wants to show mercy to you, but also to your enemies. So instead of going to Nineveh, he goes the opposite direction. He gets on a boat and he goes towards Spain. Tarshish is called at the time. And when he gets out there, we find that the storm hits. And ultimately, the storm hits because now the guy who's wagging his finger at those rebels against God becomes a rebel himself. He doesn't care about the people around him. He's thrown into the sea Blub, 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 he's swallowed by a whale. And for whatever reason in the story, and we have copies of these scrolls from 300 BC, it mentions why, of all the details, was he there three days? 
fact, in 1947, they were exploring another hidden clue in the Qumran caves. And they found a scroll here in this cave that had a carbon dated scroll for 200 BC. So we know that what we have here predates Jesus predicting his own death. This was a document used for people for hundreds of years, written by Jonah. And it mentions in here, he's in the whale three days. Why mention that? Like, what an what interesting clue to kind of leave for us to find out. Why three days? Why not say it, he went 100 yards? Why not say it took a while? It mentions three days. He makes his way back through the whale. He spit up on the shore. He's not in any way obedient. He stomps his way to Nineveh. Turn or burn! God's going to throw lightning bolts at you, and I hope he does. The people say, you're right. We're in the wrong. We need to change our ways. In the most successful persuasive speech ever given, he feels like a failure. He stomps up on a hill, looks at the city, and says, God, I'd rather be dead, kill me now, then live in a world with forgiven Ninevites. Which is our third Easter egg. God's going to show him that there's something dead in him that makes himself righteous. Something dead in him that makes him wave his finger and think he's better than others. There's something dead in him. It's not that he doesn't know what to do or the right thing to do. He doesn't need more education or inspiration He needs his soul and spirit resurrected. So those are our clues. What do those clues mean for us? And and did this story even really happen? Let's look at those clues together. The first clue is this idea of God wanting to show mercy to me. Okay, mercy means not getting what you deserve. I kind of like that. But he also wants to extend mercy to your enemies. Hmm. I'm kind of for the lightning bolt on that. You know, I don't want a lightning bolt, but I want them to have a lightning bolt. And the entire book of Jonah is a giant, geniusly written satire. It's a giant poem. And all of the ideas are called chiasms. They rhyme with each other. So chapter 1 rhymes with chapter 3. Chapter 2 rhymes with chapter 4. The bad guys all do the right thing, and the good guys, like Jonah, do the wrong thing. I'll give you the quick chiasm here. Chapter 1, Jonah encounters these, these people who don't believe in his God the way he does, these mariners. They don't believe in his God, but they care more about him than he cares about them. Chapter 2, Jonah has this pathetic prayer as he's dying in the whale. Chapter 3, Jonah encounters Ninevites, which rhymes with the mariners, who respond to what God says even though Jonah is angry at what God did. Now we get to chapter 4, where God is again, shows us Jonah's pathetic prayer. He before was dying, now he wishes he was dead. And the whole thing shows it's the religious people who got a real problem. They think they're better than others. So we pick up on the story. Because he thinks he's better than the Ninevites, he runs out on this boat with other people he thinks he's better than. And the captain of the ship, who doesn't believe in his God, wakes him up and says, hey, call on your God or any other God you got. We're dying here so that we may not perish. We may not die. And again, the irony is the captain of the ship cares more about him than he does about them. He's like, ah, you know what? If you want to take care of the storm, just throw me overboard. 
So he's thrown overboard. And they, they try everything not to do that. And he goes blub, blub, blub through the water and he's swallowed up by the giant fish, right? We'll get to whether or not that can really happen in a second. He's taken back, spit out in the land. And when he's pouting on that hill, after everyone has responded, his enemies, he says, God, I want to tell you exactly why I went to Spain or to Tarshish. He says, this is why. Look what he says. I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. You are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. That's why I left. I did not want you to forgive those people who believe the wrong thing and do the wrong thing, and I believe I'm better than them. Take my life from me. I'd rather be dead. And suddenly the guy who's judging rebels is a rebel, but he's still as self-righteous as ever at the end of the book. You see, the message of the Bible is that God has always been trying to bring mercy to you, but also to your enemies. The people you other, I'm not like them. And it's easy in our current culture to say they're the problem, they're the problem. People who believe that are the problem. People who don't do this or do that are the problem. The Bible says we're the problem and we need mercy, not getting what we deserve. And Jesus came to extend mercy to everyone. Romans, Jews, Greeks, Gentiles. Now you might say, Chad, well, that's a nice story, but I, I still don't believe this thing happened. Drew was telling me we had a group of people coming to the church recently, and one of our mottos is we're yours to explore. So if you don't believe in Jonah or want some evidence for that, we love those conversations. So somebody invited uh, this uh, lady at our church to a, a women's Bible study. She'd never really been to a Bible study before. She's like, well, I'm not going to show up to a Bible study you know, by myself. So she invited some friends, and they showed up and just had a great time. Got to know some people. The Christians didn't seem too judgmental. They actually kind of seemed fun and had a good time. They asked lots of questions. They came back and talked to a person who's been attending for a while and said, you know what, I was just afraid we were going to show up and they were going to be studying Jonah. And I'm like going to be the only one in the room who doesn't believe the guy got swallowed by a whale. And they said, you should have brought that up. Horizon loves those questions. Drew, Chad, love those questions. This is the place to ask those questions. So let's ask those questions. Are you willing to extend mercy to people you consider your enemies. But the second question, why three days? And could a person really be swallowed by a whale for three days? That's our second Easter egg. God brings resurrection from the dead using three days. Now, it'd be helpful to know that Christians take different views on Jonah. Some people think that Jonah is alive in that whale for three days. And of course, they're mammals, they breathe air, so there would be some air in there. That's one view. Christians also believe that Jonah died in that whale, and he got resurrected and spit out. To which you're like, oh, this story's getting worse. Except think of it philosophically. Think of it philosophically. If the Bible is what it says it is, a book about how a supernatural God occasionally does supernatural things, super beyond natural in the world, wouldn't it be a bigger problem if this book that's supposedly about an all-powerful God and he never did anything all-powerful? Wouldn't that be big, a bigger philosophical problem? So if there is a supernatural God, he should be able to do supernatural things. And so the belief is that he rose him from the dead. There's a third view that even C.S. Lewis, a very famous Christian, he believed the whole book was a giant allegory. Don't take it too seriously. 
And yet, why mention Nineveh, a real place? Why mention uh, the Assyrian Empire, a real place? Why mention so many specific historic data if it's just an allegory? Worth considering. I take the second view, that actually Jonah dies in that whale, and God rose him from the dead, and that's why Jesus points to this clue. I'll show you why in a moment. But let's get to whether or not a person can be swallowed by a whale. I mean, COVID's been a bear, hasn't it? But here's two benefits of COVID. We have two real, live, recent news stories of people who got swallowed by whales that we can study. One in 2021 and one in 2019. Up near Nantucket, the Jerusalem Post reported, but you can find it all over the place if you Google it. There's a man who's swimming along. He's got like a 12-year-old and 15-year-old, if I remember. And as he's swimming along, 57 commercial lobster diver, Michael Picard, he's diving off Herring Cove Beach. And as he's diving, he's swimming this way, all of a sudden, a humpback whale comes from behind him, fully covers him, pitch black. He's terrified. He thinks he just got eaten by a shark. But while he's in this black, tight space, he realizes he has no cuts. So it wasn't a shark. He thinks, well, maybe it's a whale. So he decides to kind of move and, and shiver around a little bit, which apparently having someone shiver around in your throat doesn't feel real good, even if you're a whale. So the whale breaches and spits him out about 45 seconds later. That's 2021. Back in 2019, there was an account at the bottom of South Africa. Very famous filmmaker, conservationist, and he is filming a sardine run. Apparently he must be looking down at the time. Because while he's filming down, a hump whale is coming in front of him. He doesn't see it. All of a sudden opens up to eat all those sardines and clamps down on him. But he doesn't get all the way in. The whale breaches back up in the water. And as he does, the, the man, the conservationist filmmaker's wife and partner, see his legs dangling out of the whale. Apparently, his wetsuit and everything didn't taste real good. And they spit him out. And he was freed. Here's my point. I think a supernatural God can do supernatural things. And I think a guy predicts his death and resurrection. I'll go with his opinion of Jonah. But there's real-time evidence that it's possible that someone could be and has been swallowed by a whale, even for a brief time. Now, why do I say that I think Jonah has died? Well, let me show you what happens in the passage here. When he, he writes this, obviously not in real time, but later, Jonah says, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. I have been cast out of your sight. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. You're like, really? Moorings of the mountains? One of those mountain ranges at the bottom of the sea. Yeah, you're telling me that he could see down there? He would have lost consciousness by that. What does he mean by that? He says, the earth with its bars closed around me forever. Now look at these words. Sheol, the word for death. Cast out forever. And then you had to bring me up from the pit. Now to understand the words he's using here, we need to understand the, the kind of mindset of eternity of someone in around 500 B.C. And they viewed life this way. There was the sky, there was the earth, and then they would say the place of death was down there. We, we didn't see that today. We don't really believe, you know, if you dig far enough, you're going to find the place of death. It's probably a different dimension or whatever you believe. But we still use the idea, it's down there. I don't want to go down there, I want to go up here. Well, they called the place that was down there Sheol. So he's using his language to say, I went to Sheol, 
And they believe it was a mountain range that went down beneath that. So he said, I didn't just go to Sheol. I went all the way down to the moorings of the mountains to what Hebrews called the great deep or the pit. So whether he really died or thought he died, he's using language that he or a person in his culture would describe as dying. Out of Sheol I was forever. I got delivered from the pit. All right. Now, this is interesting because when Jesus shows up, he references a similar idea. In Jonah, it says, Out of the belly of Sheol, or the grave, I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And it's almost like what a sailor would say, Ar, 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 matey, you know, yuck, 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 bye bye. You know, he died. What, what happened to him? He went to the, to the heart of the seas. However, if you're a landlubber, a landlubber, you would call the heart of the seas the heart of the earth. And so when Jesus shows up, he says, just as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So very similar. Heart of the seas, a kind of a sailor term for death. Heart of the earth, a landlubber's version of it. So Jesus is saying, whether you think Jonah really died or didn't, I think he did. Whether he really happened or didn't, I think it happened. We have a copy of the scroll that predates Jesus by 300 years. We know we have multiple manuscript evidence of Jesus' life and biographies that say he predicted his death and resurrection years in advance. No one believed it. No one understood it. Yet the guy fulfilled his predictions. And he even cited a clue from 500 years earlier as evidence. Now, here's what's more amazing. If you ever thought about the Easter week, maybe you grew up you know, Catholic or Lutheran or Presbyterian, you heard about you know, Palm Sunday. Well, Palm Sunday is kind of the Protestant or Catholic term for a Jewish holiday that got established by Moses at 1500 B.C., and we have copies of those scrolls, that the Sunday before Passover, you would actually have Lamb Selection Day. So Jesus walks into Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day when people begin to cheer, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, picking the lamb that would die for Passover. That's the time Jesus enters into the city. Then Jesus doesn't just die any old time. He dies on a very specific Jewish holiday that had been predicted and put in place 1500 B.C. called Passover. He dies on Passover. Then three days later, according to historians and the biblical accounts, He's raised just not on any day. It's just not any three days. It's a particular year that another Jewish festival called First Fruits, started by Moses in 1500 BC, occurs. So, what's First Fruits? First Fruits is the day that you take from the ground that which comes out, your fruit, your barley. You take what comes out of the ground and present it to God. Jesus doesn't just die on a Jewish festival from 1,500 years ago. He's raised on a Jewish festival three days apart, and he is what comes out of the ground as a Jewish rabbi and presented to God. Maybe that's one incredible coincidence. Or maybe it's some evidence worth considering. Three days, we got a copy of the scroll. We know we got copies of the, the writings of Moses that say these specific holidays happened at this time. We know the account from Josephus and Tacitus that Jesus lived in that first century. We know something happened that transformed the world in the Roman Empire. Three days. Specific day. Hmm. It's interesting, C.S. Lewis, when he was having his spiritual journey, he got to be friends with J.R. Tolkien. 
the writer of Lord of the Rings. Now, J.R. Tolkien was a committed Christian. J.R. Tolkien got to be friends with, uh, with C.S. Lewis, who, again, was an atheist at the time, and they began to talk about their love of fairy tales and their love of, of mysteries, and C.S. Lewis was an expert on ancient literature and ancient myths. And one day he turns to J.R. Tolkien, and he says this. He says, if I met the idea of sacrifice, God and resurrection, in a pagan story, a not-Christian story, I didn't mind it at all. I love listening about Osiris and, and, and Baal. In fact, when I met the idea of a God sacrificing himself to himself, I liked it very much. I was, I was mysteriously moved by it. Anywhere except when I read it in the Gospels, the biography of Jesus. But I've started to realize, and this is because of his conversation with, with Tolkien, that Christ is simply the true myth. It's the fulfillment of all those dreams and all those hopes and all those resurrection stories that we wished were true. In the same way, he says, as the others, but with this tremendous difference, it really happened in history and we have evidence to back it up. And it was two writers of literature, it was two philosophers who've written some of the most famous books in history that C.S. Lewis became a Christian because he began to see the evidence for God, he writes about mere Christianity, and the evidence for resurrection that he saw in these stories he'd been reading his whole life. God wants to show mercy to you and to your enemies. He can use three days to bring about resurrection. But what's our last clue? The story of Jonah is an example that you and I don't need uh, rehabilitation. We need resurrection. The greatest need in the human soul is resurrection. Jonah knows he's supposed to love people who are different from him. That's not new information. He knows that he's supposed to obey God even though he ran away. He doesn't lack information or education. He lacks resurrection. He's got dead spots. Just like our bodies are dying, our souls are dying. And so while he's sitting out there pouting, wishing that God would send a lightning bolt on the Ninevites, God has a really interesting conversation with him. Let me go back to what he said in chapter 2. He said, when I was dying and I was getting what I deserved being a rebel, it was salvation, deliverance came from the Lord. I couldn't educate myself out of the, the whale. I couldn't inspire myself out of the whale. I needed God to deliver me, either literally resurrect me or figuratively res resurrect me. So he, a rebel who got God's mercy in the whale, still doesn't want to show mercy to his enemies. He's still got dead spots in the way he feels about other people. God needs to resurrect not just his body, but his heart, his thoughts, his feelings. So God shows up and has this really interesting conversation with him. God gave him a little plant to give him some shade, and the plant died. Jonah's all mad about it. And so God says, listen, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about that plant? You've got more pity for the plant than you have for the people in Nineveh. You didn't make that plant. Shouldn't I have pity for Nineveh, the people I made? There's 120,000 people who live there, and I love this line, and their livestock. If you're an animal lover, so is God. I don't want to destroy that place. I got some nice cows. Eat more chicken. Mm. <laughs> this is the last line of the poem that's known as the book of Jonah. It never answers the question because Jonah knows this question is for you and I. Do you care about people who are different from you? 
Do you have pity or compassion? And the answer is, I know I should, but I just don't. I'm running out of patience with my spouse. I've run out of, uh, out of compassion for a, a son who's rebelled against me. I've run out of, of whatever. And you've tried hard to change it. But the problem is you don't need rehabilitation. You need resurrection to say, God, you've got to resurrect what's broken in me. I need you to fix this. I need to breathe life. And so the main metaphor of the Bible is not we're bad people who need to be good. We're dead people who need to be made alive. Do you need God to wake you up inside? Here's the metaphor the Bible says is how we're made. We are body, soul, and spirit, and all are dying. The older you get, the more it's easy to see your body's falling apart. But did you know your soul's falling apart? Your soul has three parts, what you want, your will, what you feel, your heart, what you think, your mind. And did you know you feel dead things? I don't feel like anyone likes me. I don't feel like this is important. I don't feel like God would be for me. I think dead thoughts. Man, I'm angry at them. I'm better than them. I know I shouldn't think I'm better than them, but I am because I work harder. I believe the right things or my politics are better. We want the wrong thing. I know that's destructive to me and I told myself I wouldn't do it, but I keep doing it. Those aren't bad spots. Those are dead spots. And the message of the Bible is if you invite God into your life, he will one day raise your body from the dead, but long before that, he will give you a new spirit. He'll put his Holy Spirit and a live spirit in you. That becomes the engine that you start saying, God, I've got your engine in me now. God, I found, a, I found a dead spot. Help me think the right thoughts. Help me feel the right thoughts. Help me want the right things. What would it look like for you this week to look at the evidence for Jesus and maybe begin to look for dead spots in your life and say, God, I need your resurrection because if it's a bad thing and you do better, you're real proud of yourself. <laughs> you're back in the same problem. I'm proud. But if every time something good comes out of you, it's because you got the resources from something other than you, you can increasingly get alive and increasingly stay humble, increasingly get grateful, and increasingly get more dependent upon God. That's how the message of Christianity works. It's simply saying to God, God, I found another dead spot. Breathe life into that. It's like my buddy Mitch. Mitch started attending our church, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago. And Mitch said that the significant moment in his life that he came to start seeking spiritually was when his mom died. I thought, wow, you got angry at God? He's like, no, no, the opposite. I was sitting at her bedside. I only believed in what I could see, touch, my five senses. And suddenly my mom died. Nothing had changed in the room, and yet everything had changed. Something invisible that was my mom was no longer here. And this shell that looked like my mom no longer had the essence of my mom. And I realized maybe there's something more to life than just what we see and touch. So I started coming to Horizon. I started building friendships. I started asking questions. I didn't realize how much there was to learn, how much evidence there was to study. And then I found some habits in my life that I had tried to overcome and tried to work on and tried to be better at. And I instead started to depend on God to breathe life into those dead spots and I'm becoming a better man, a better husband, a better version of myself. And that's what I want for you.